So, welcome to this. I'm really excited about this, in case you hadn't gathered that. Jenny Patrick, she's the author of nine novels, um, the majority uh, historical um, fiction. The Deniston Rose was her first. It was published back in 2003. Went on to be the biggest, or second biggest selling um, novel of 2003. Interestingly, the one that beat her just was Witi Ihimara's Whale Rider. Between 2003 and 2009, there were 18 reprints of this book. It makes it one of the biggest selling books in New Zealand's history. Uh, in 2008, Jenny was awarded the New Zealand Post Mansfield Literary Prize. But before she started writing, before this came out in 2003, you were a jeweller. Yes, I was. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you were on the Creative Arts, you led the Creative Arts Council for a number of years. Yes. Mm. And you'd written children's stories and, and for radio and television. So, why a novel? Well, it was really because I'd been a jeweller for almost 30 years and I was getting arthritis in my thumbs and I couldn't, I felt I couldn't work all day on at the jewellery bench. I've still got my bench and I still make for the family but not uh, commercially. And I also had been chairing what's called Creative New Zealand now, was the Arts Council, and that was a job that... Uh, was almost like a full-time job so I'd sort of slipped away from the jewellery a bit and I thought well I'll try writing serious well I shouldn't say that because the 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 children's songs and musical shows that I wrote with my husband he's a musician um, were serious too mm. but that's what I'd done all my, uh, I'd always written for children and I thought I'll give this a go for adults. You, for, you did the Bill Manhart creative writing course? Yes, I did. In the very early days of Bill Manhart's course, it was just the, the intake was 12 people. Now it's hundreds. And uh, it, it, we were all randomly selected by Bill, you know, and so there were old people like me. I was in my 60s then, and young lads, and there was one man who was blind and was doing his writing. Oh, wow via um, uh, uh, something that talked to him. So it was a... Uh, and I thought, of course, having got into his class, that I would be the next best thing uh, <laughs> in New Zealand writing, but it didn't happen that way. You know, it took a long time before Deniston Rose came out and quite a few rejections too. Well, you wrote two books, and both of them were based sort of like um, on your family, basically, and they were, they were turned down. But you went to one of these sorts of events, a reader-writer, I, I believe, and Annie Prohl was... Annie Prue was there, yes. Oh, she, it was, I was chairing at that time the uh, reader, Writers and Readers uh, Festival, a festival like this one in Wellington, and it was a wonderful session of four people, Annie Prue, um, Kate Grenfell, the Australian writer, um, who was, um, oh, Carol Shields, and our own Kerry Hume. Oh, wow. All four of them. And they were talking about uh, what, what um, how your creative juices got going and so on. And Annie Prue and her very forthright way leaned forward and said don't write about what you know write about what you don't know so I thought well I've been trying to do something about my family I'll, tr I'll try and think of something that uh, is different and I thought about a holiday that I'd 
gone with Lawton, my husband, and my old mum, and we'd driven up to Deniston, and I thought about the ghosts that I could feel there, and I read on a tiny little billboard there that some of the women who'd gone up there, recruited from England with their mining husbands, had never come down again, having got into a coal wagon and driven all the way, ridden up there to that bleak plateau, hadn't come down again, although Westport's not far away, uh, for 25 years till the road came in. Because there was no, when they went up, there was no track, there was no road. And I thought, after Annie Prue said that, I thought, there's a story there. I don't know anything about it, so I'm going to write about it. Yes, <laughs> basically. That's right. So I started researching. But can I tell you a funny story? Oh, please. This is about that same session. It's not quite on the point, but anyway. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> Kerry Hume was talking about her book. Uh, she'd been famous for the bone people, but she was writing something called uh, Bait and had had a good grant to do it, and so on. And she, at the same time, Annie Prue had just brought out her book um, called Accordion Crimes, and it, it was really a history of an accordion that was passed from person to person through quite a long uh, period in America. And at the end of every chapter, before the accordion went to somebody else, the person who owned the accordion died a grisly and very imaginative death. And Kerry Hume was saying, I can't, she'd been trying to get this book finished for ages, and she said, I can't, my trouble is that I've rather fallen in love with my main character, this woman, and, um, but I know I've got to kill her off, and I can't do it. And Annie Prue leaned over and said, I'll hand her to me for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd heard her. She sounds amazing. <laughs> I wish. <I'd> <laughs> so, Denison, I mean, Denison Rose is set in 1883. How on earth do you research something like that when you're, you're writing it 120 years later? Well, well, it wasn't quite so far along. But fortunately, because the incline, getting the coal down, was a famous um, engineering feat. There were wonderful photographs of it and a lot written about it in engineering books. And also, the first miners' strike happened mm. up there. And so there was uh, good, good literature about the miners' strike and how it happened and so on. And those were the two really good, apart from going down, going to the Coaltown Museum in Westport that had these wonderful photographs. And talking to an old an old miner, um, Jeff Kitchen, who's dead now, but he walked me all over Deniston and I put a little um, you know, microphone on him and got him to just talk and he rambled on about because I had to know how you got the coal out and how mm. you mined and so on. And he just told me everything. His grandfather had worked on the mine there and his father and he he worked on the mines when he was 14 years old and he wasn't he was about the same age as me 
And I thought, well, here I was going to school in Kelvin and Wellington and going to my violin lessons and my dancing lessons and so on. And here was he working in the mine. It was a gritty, gritty time, wasn't it? It yeah, was it. gritty, yes. Why did you choose a four-year-old girl as your main character? Well, she kind of crept in. <laughs> <laughs> I, wa I was intending to write about um, the women, those women who were stuck up there, and I thought I'll take one woman who is a miner's wife, recruited from England, uh, a solid Methodist uh, chapel lady, and I'll take one woman who is 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 second generation New Zealand and is up there with her husband running a pub, a guest house and pub. And I'll take one colourful woman because there was a great clash up there between the solid professional miners and the other workers who worked up there who were mainly, they were called riffraff, uh, ex-gold miners, that sort of thing, uh, not really skilled at hewing coal. And I thought I'd take those three women, Mary Scobie, Totty Hanratty, and Bella, Bella Rasmussen. I'm having to remember this because I haven't talked about <laughs> Denniston for years. <laughs> I've talked about the other. And, but then somehow Rose crept in, and I, I recognised later why she did, and that was because there was some, somebody a child about the same age that I was quite close to who was having a hard time not being well mothered and who I was very fond of and yet this child was a survivor. She, well, it was a he actually, but he could have gone down and become um, a statistic in mm. some way, but he had that natural surviving skill, and I w and and Rose was like that mm. too. She could have gone down, but she was a survivor. So I didn't realise that that was the connection why Rose came in. When did you realise that? Well, I couldn't tell you somewhere along no, the way. <laughs> yeah. you, you invented this character and then realised that you're basing yes. it on this. Yes, the that's right. You. Yes, I realised. I was fascinated in the survival thing, yeah. you know. And of course, all of them up there were survivors or not survivors. I love this, um, this quote from the book. There was a saying that every living soul on the hill had been chased there by the law or some other fury, that they escaped onto that desolate plateau and then somehow mutated like a tough breed of goats into a race that actually enjoyed mist and cold and isolation. <laughs> the very start of that, that everybody was chased there, is interesting. Yes, well, maybe the English miners weren't. No. They were recruited. But um, a lot of them were chapel and union people. Chapel miners tended to be union. And um, there was a bit of a feeling that maybe those chapel miners were um, sent out because the, the uh, bosses, the, min, the mine bosses in England didn't want them, didn't want the union fighters. That, and there was a little bit of that happened because when, those, when the first lot of recruited miners came, the mine owner up there, I, I put it in the book, he'd, he wouldn't have them. 
He said, look at these. They're all chapel people. Mm. They're all going to be union unionists. We won't use them. And they had to go and cut scrub around here, around Murchison. Mm. But then they were too they were too useful. And so they were the and the ex gold miners and so on were so useless at bringing the coal out that they had to. You see, that amazed me because in the book, and I think you've described it very well, and Mary Scobie's talking about the fact that it was really rather nice in the Nelson Murchison area. But these these men, they wanted to get back under mm. the ground and they hew did. the coal. It's yes. it's like it was in their blood. Yes, I think it was in their blood. And and for the miners, it wasn't such a bad life here. That's what Jeff Kitchen told me that his great grandfather, whoever came out, um, had been underground in England, and he went down God knows how far, and then his tunnel went right out under the sea. Well, here on Deniston, the layers of the seams of coal were kind of horizontal to the land, or still are some of them, uh, with a bit of la a bit of rock above, rock below. But the miners in 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 the gully there could drill in and hew coal from almost immediately. Mm. They didn't have to drill down. It was, um, and there were big slabs of uh, coal, big seams of coal. So the working conditions for the miners was better than in England. Certainly wasn't for their wives and children. No, it wasn't for their wives and children. I, mean, I've, I went there last weekend for the first time and it is bleak. I mean, you, you can see the mist coming in and yes. I mean three quarters of the year it's covered in mist or it's rain and it's yes I've, but yes. the women well they were uh, and I, I think some of uh, I mean I've been taken to task by some of the women who don't live up there any longer but were born up there and they were saying oh Jenny you got it all wrong it was fun up there we liked it you know and I didn't like to point out to them that they're talking about um, a later time mm. I, I, I kind of like, if I'm writing historical novel, I like to write it a little bit further back than anyone can really remember. <laughs> <laughs> no one can contradict you that way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but so they, weren't, they were remembering a time a little easier. But they were, those women were like the tough breed of goats. Mm. You know, they learnt to love it and, and there was a lot of, a lot that went on up there, they made their own fun. There was a lot of social life up there. It wasn't all terrible. And you talk about they, they were very house-proud and spotless sort of places. You know, there's coal all around and dust I and know. dirt. And yes, and, and you see the early photographs of these women hanging out their sheets and, uh, and there's the mist and here's the coal dust coming. It was a nightmare to dry washing, so yeah. I heard, you know, up there. I'd like to actually... I think you're going to read something yes. about that. Uh, perhaps we could do that now, about the harshness that the women yes. um, at Deniston actually faced. All right, I'll, I'll read a bit. Um, I think I'll read this one. I was torn between which bit. To, but this is Mary Scobie is the miner's wife, and she's the one who's found it most difficult. She's come from, a, from an area where she had parents and grandparents and support and she's come to this area where she has no relatives and uh, she has six children they're all boys and uh, all but one are in the mines and her um, in the first few weeks of her time up there her one of her sons died in the mine 
and her brother-in-law died in the mine. And it is blamed on this guy, Jimmy Cork, who was negligent. And Jimmy Cork's so-called daughter, wasn't really his daughter, but was little Rose. So Rose, by osmosis, has been a pariah because of her father. So Mary, shall I stand up to read this? Or Can you see me all right like this? Yeah, yeah. You stay comfortable. Yeah, I'm very comfortable. Um, so Mary Scobie has gone to see Totty Hanratty, who also has a child. Uh, there are not many children up there to talk about maybe starting up a school. There's a silence as the two sip their tea. Michael and Brennan circle each other like puppies. Then Michael bolts into the hallway and Brennan follows. Soon they are banging up and down the corridor with whoops and Totty has to call them not to wake the baby. I heard you had six boys and all in the mine, says Totty, back in the kitchen. Tom didn't speak about the little one. Mary takes a scone. It's yesterday's, warmed in the oven. Well, and that is the reason for this visit. I would like Brennan to have some schooling. There are two more children arrived last week up near us, nine and ten years old. With your Michael, that makes four. Also, Mary Scobie takes a breath as if preparing for some battle, I intend to take the twins out of the mine for a year's schoolwork, to take their certificate. Six pupils is enough for a school, they say. Totty flushes, not sure how to put it. There's another little one, Rose. She could do with the schooling. Mary looks her dead in the eye. The child at the camp? Yes. Jimmy Corks? Well, she lives there, but who can say no? Mrs Scobie. This time Totty is the one preparing for battle. No, my dear, not in a school with my boys. The older woman's face is granite. It would not work. The father should... The child did not choose her father. The father should leave this place, not settle his blood here for schooling. Well, Totty smiles in spite of herself. Rose will likely send herself to school, and no one will have the heart to turn her away. Wait till you see her, Mary. Not I, nor any other Scobie, will wish to set eyes on her. There will be trouble. For a moment, the only sound is the boy's boots on the floorboards. Then Mary Scobie straight-backed at the table, but unseeing, starts speaking as if a small crack has opened, just enough for the words to edge out. The words are bitter, the voice bleak as winter. What kind of God-forsaken place is this, where you cannot bury your dead? My eldest son Samuel and his uncle Frank, both of them dead in a day, and I can visit the graveside of neither. What kind of a settlement can we build here without our dead? Without a churchyard? This is devil's country, iron hard rock, black sky, and no shred of honest soil to bury the dead. My son is lying where he fell, who can say where? His body not laid out, crumpled under a mountain of rock like some animal. Who can pray? Who can commune with the dead at the mouth of a clattering mine? I'm sorry, says Totty. She pats the older woman's hand, but the gesture goes unnoticed. And what if our babies die? Which they will, of course. 
Mary Scobie is deep inside herself, oblivious now, surely, of her hostess's condition. Will we have to put them on a coal wagon and watch them descend away and away forever? Could you live through that and remain in your right mind? Could you? Please, murmurs Totty. The incline, Mary Scobie spits the word, is not fit transport for a human being, nor a coffin. I will never travel it. Totty has heard of the funeral. Two days after the deaths, Mary Scobie had stood in the rain on the Burnett's face entrance to Banbury Mine while her husband, the boys and the other miners had somberly placed Frank's coffin onto a coal box, guided it through the same mine that killed him, then loaded the body onto a coal wagon and ridden down the incline with it, roaring down the rails, the dead out of reach forever, out by rail, past Cons Creek, past Koronui Mine, all the way to Waimangaroa, where there was consecrated soil deep enough for a grave. Mary, with Granny Benny beside her for company, had stood like stone, they said, had not moved while the coffin descended both sections of the incline. She had stood on after the faint shriek of the train whistle far below signalled the next stage of the funeral cortege. At last, with Granny Benny guiding her, she had returned in silence to the tiny, empty house. That was bleak. <laughs> uh, yes, that was bleak. And, um, and it's interesting that graveyard at Waimangaroa has many, many tiny headstones for the many children who died of, mainly of diphtheria up there, and they all face the incline. If you stand at the, in the graveyard there at Waimangaroa and look up, you can see the top of the incline and all, those, all, the, Waima, all the Burnett's face and uh, Deniston Graves' face that way. And do the others in there? Or it's, it's specifically done for the miners? No, there are others, but, but there's more, more um, Deniston dead there oh. because there the just wasn't the soil to bury up there. Tell me, when you wrote this, had you approached a publisher before you wrote it, or no, you wrote no it? No way, <laughs> no, I hadn't. And um, when I wrote, when I finished the first draft of it, um, or the second or the third, you know, when I was ready to send it to a publisher, I sent it to two different publishers and um, got turned down by both. And I thought, oh well, perhaps back to the jewellery bench <laughs> and. But then about six months later, I took out the two rejection letters, and one of them was kinder than the other. And so I, and it suggested rewriting, bringing it more up to date, more modern, and so on, which I did for about a whole year. And um, then I sent it to a script assessor to um, thinking. I might get some advice from her, uh, which I did. And she said, throw away all that modern stuff, you know. <laughs> Go back to that, you know. And, uh, and I would just develop Rose a little bit more. So I did a bit of that for another six months or something. Oh. And then she said, um, I would send it to HarperCollins because they are the only publishing house in New Zealand who do historical fiction. So I sent it to HarperCollins and uh, the lovely man up there, Ian Watt was his name, he um, 
had a look at it and he said, oh, I think there's, there's something good here, but I'd like you to, you know, oh. and so there was another six months of rewriting and I sent it back to him and he said, I'm, I'm ready now to take it to the publishing committee, which he did. No, he didn't. Next day he rang and said, um, his voice was shaking and he said, I've just been fired. I've been given 24 hours to move out of my office. Harper Collins is moving to Australia. They're leaving just a junior publisher here. So I'll have to give it to her and I'm sure she'll love it. Well, she didn't. And oh, God! So that was it, you know, and that was, a, if I hadn't been as old as I was and as tough after the Arts Council, I think um, I would have given up. But Ian Watt, dear man, rang me a few weeks later and said, I've been talking to the script assessor and we think it should be published. So here are two options. They're both real long shots, he said. You could go to Shoal Bay Press, which is a South Island press, Christchurch Press. Trouble is, they do non-fiction. Or you could go to um, Random House, New Zealand. They do fiction, but they don't do historical fiction. So I decided on Random House and um, sent it up and I was lucky because they had just, Random House had just decided to branch out into crime and they thought, well, we might try New Zealand historical fiction as well. They thought it was a terrific punt and... And they didn't think it would actually sell, did they? they no, they, they didn't. They told you that there wasn't, they didn't. wasn't and, an audience there for it. And what was lucky for me was they said, well, it's too big for um, a first novel, so why don't we stop the novel at uh, the end of your part one and your part two, which is, was just quite a um, third of the novel perhaps, you could expand that and that could be a sequel. Well, and I thought, how oh, wonderful, two novels, you know. And... <laughs> and the, where they wanted to stop it was exactly where I had decided to, on the very first draft that I sent up, was that that's where it stopped. And um, That Rose comes back. Up yes, yes, Rose comes back. That's oh, where really? I wanted so to stop it. Half and Coal was already partly written. Yes, some of it was. So that was a, a long story, sorry. No. Not too long to tell you, but it was. Um, I was very close to giving up. Then. In total, how many years did you work on it then before? About six. Oh, wow. I would have given up. After that, they came quite fast. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they but thought it was a punt, and yeah. they didn't think it was going to work. You obviously didn't. I didn't think it was going to. You know, I was just over the moon that they were going to actually publish it. And they, I think they printed 1,500 copies, something like that. And then... The, when their reps went around the bookshops, I think there was quite a big take-up, and so they printed another 1,500, and then another. By the time we had the launch day, it had been reprinted five times <laughs> before it had even stole. So this interest was coming from the booksellers themselves? Yes, it was, and perhaps they knew what their people... people I was totally lucky, I have to say, that it was just the time when New Zealand readers were ready to read their own stories. Yeah. And, um, and I hit the right moment, I think. It was quite a good book too, but... You know. <laughs> 
did they launch it, you know, in a really big way in, in 2003? Oh, yes. Um, no, no, but we had my, all my family, my husband's a musician, a lot of my family are singers and uh, that. So we had a lovely launch and uh, for, all, for all the book launches that we've had, our family have always sung a song for it that Lawton has arranged the music and we've sung, you know, so for this, for this one we sang a, um, a, a, there's a ballad in the book, uh, The Deniston Rose, and Lawton put that to music and we sang it. That's the Rose but, of Tralee. Hmm. But the, uh, the biggest and best book launch, or am I, am I rabbiting on no, too long? No, you're not. <laughs> you talk for the, hours. The... Um, we did, after Denston Rose became popular, Random House thought it would be a good idea to do an illustrated version of it. I think they'd been um, uh, tempted by the... Who was that guy who wrote... Um, oh, uh, an airport novelist who wrote uh, a novel about um, Jesus and the... Oh, forget about it. Anyway, he did an illustrated version of his book. So they thought, let's do an illustrated version, a big coffee table, illustrated version with the text of both books, Heart of Coal and Denston Rose, and 200, 300 photographs, pictures. So we did that. Mm -hmm. I, Lawton and I had a whole lovely year going around tiny museums, finding all the photographs and all that. And then the, the mayor of Westport came up and asked if, he could, if we could launch it at his, down in Westport. And we said, oh, yes, we'd love, love that. That would be great. And he said, well, we've never had a, a book launch. Uh, what do you have for a book launch? And so I said, well, you have some drinks and some nibbles, and then somebody speaks, and then I speak. Oh, we could do better than that, he said. You know. <laughs> so he said, couldn't we expand it a bit? So I said, well, i tell you what, um, does Westport have a brass band? Because there's a lot of brass band playing. <laughs> do we ever, he said, yes. <laughs> So it it expanded and it expanded, and the book launch, you've never seen a book launch like it. It, it was a two-day event, and, <laughs> and, and it started with Solid Energy putting on lunch up on the hill for all the, all the old people who still remembered living there, and there were speeches and drinks and I spoke and so on and Lawton and I were transported up there. It was a fine day for once and as we got out of the car there was a lone piper in full kilt dress piping us in as if we were the king and queen and, and the, the Westport brass band was sitting up there playing and then that night or next day we had, there was a whole concert in the down at Westport, and in the in the Denston Rose book, the uh, the, the children put on a concert mm. to raise funds. The school children, and and they'd read through all the items that I wrote for um, that oh. concert, and they said we'll have every item that you've got there. So oh, the uh, school children did a hornpipe. They had somebody being Brennan and Rose singing Rose of Tralee with a hornet um, cornet. Uh, obligato and there was one bit one item on the thing that said um, sunrise an original poem by Michael Hanratty aged nine and um, they rang up from from Westport and said uh, 
does that poem exist? I said, no. Would you like to write it? <laughs> so I wrote it, and a little boy came out and recited it. It was a wonderful, wonderful book launch. Well, um, you don't know this. People in Melbourne might, they might have read the story, but um, I was saying to you, I went to Deniston last week, and I'd never been there. And there's actually a link here in Marlborough, a very strong link to Deniston, um, and it's, it's amazing you talk about the brass band because Kevin Mosley, who is the he leader of our brass band in Melbourne, his mm. grandparents came out. or yeah. were, They were, they were um, on this. His parents, yes. both parents were born there. Mm. So last weekend, we decided that we'd go up to Denston and he would explain it all to us. Because you actually interviewed his auntie Sylve for yes. quite some time. Yes. And mm. I thought, in case you've never been to Deniston, it is bleak air. So um, we just, I just put together a little slideshow because oh, we took good. Kevin with us. And, um, oh, no. Should I move away? Can I? No. Can you see through? Yeah, you can see. Am I blocking uh, you? Not blocking anyone? I'll sit down if I am. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, this is Deniston Cold that we picked up. Um, there, dense as best um, anthracite coal in the world. Yeah, it's the hottest um, coal ever. Uh, but we were, we were up there. I tried to take a video, and I'm you know I, maybe I can read a book quite well and stuff, but I'm not very good with a video camera. So I've, it's just some photos. But we took Kevin, who actually happens to be a cornet player. Oh right. And his grandfather was in the Deniston band that won the championship. It was a famous. famous it was a band. famous brass band. And yes. then now Kevin is the head of mm. our brass band. We have the brass band championships here next week. Oh. So, but we do have Kevin and his wife Kathy in the audience, and hopefully, mm. here we go. I think. Is this Kevin playing? Yes. Oh, There's, oh the sound's not there. <laughs> oh. He's actually playing Rose of Tralee. I'm sorry, but there's no oh. sound with it. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a special moment, and I've, you know, um, fortunately, haven't got the sound with it. Oh, there you go. Tears to my eyes. <laughs> it oh, did to me too when I was yeah. up there. Um, I just thought that it was a nice thing to Lovely. have played because the band Lovely. played such an important part. Yes. So moving on to um, Heart of Coal, and I, I have to show you this because I don't know if I haven't got the original book, but um, on the on the book Heart of Coal, there is actually a heart made of coal on you know as the cover, and Jenny made this. This is actually. Not quite Deniston Cole. It's actually out of your. Don't tell oh, me. Oh, no, it's Deniston Cole. <laughs> it is Deniston. I got that wrong. And it's it's in gold, and that's actually used on the cover of the book. 
and you made that after writing the book, is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, we wanted, a, on, the, on the original cover, these are all new covers, mm. they decided to brand me so that they would all look a bit the same. But I liked the original cover better. Um, and and they wanted a heart of coal. I, w I was going to wear it, but I d I c when I travel down, like from or from Wellington to here, I'm I'm not allowed to k keep my pliers and things in the plane, otherwise they'll take them off. So I should have put it on first. Oh, but you've got it with you. Yes, but I brought it with me anyway. Actually, if um, I have to explain too that I don't know whether you've been to Deniston, but there is now an app. We actually had trouble downloading it, but there is an app, and there's also these brochures. And it's the Deniston Rose Trail, so you can actually follow Rose's story and walk around the whole of Deniston and burn its face and all of that. Um, and there is these posts, and they'll have a red rose, and they'll have the heart of, uh, on it as well. So we've got some here that if you would like to pick one up, and you can actually see Jenny's... Um it's got, it's got um, photographs, old photographs on it, and where to go next, you know, so it's a, a Denston Rose Trail, and I have to say uh, a tribute to Harry Broad, who's here today. Um, it was his idea to have a Denston Rose Trail, and we worked, he, he persuaded Doc to put some money into it, and we worked on it, and then they said, no, we won't do it, and uh, we thought it had fallen through, but... Uh, Maybe it was a year or two later, was it, Harry, that they came back on the, with the idea and they've, there are these little posts around and there's a, a Deniston Rose Trail which and on the app, uh, which I've never downloaded, I think it's rather big, uh, but anyway, it's got my voice reading bits and it's got, and it's got um, little clips, of old film clips of the incline actually working and that sort of thing. So I mean, it's, it's if anyone's thinking of going down there, um, yeah, pick, pick up one, one of these, they're just free. What I'm actually amazed, I mean, Deniston was obviously always a, a tourist attraction because of its, the incline, the eighth wonder, engineering wonder of the world. But after the Deniston rose, it became even more so. And I was gobsmacked about the, the placards and the billboards and the history that's actually been reprinted, mm. thanks to you. Well, I think also thanks to the um, Deniston Trust, uh, people who live in Westport have been very active, but I think, I think my book really got it going, mm. which was is very pleasing. <laughs> I I didn't realise that Heart of Cold had been part of Deniston Rose that, um, to start with. So you had about a third. Yes. When you when you'd included that third in the Deniston Rose, had you gone moved on eighteen years to that Rose was no longer a five year old girl? Yes. Yes. Had. I had. Yes. So how far had you got into Heart of Coal before... before uh, yeah. I can't honestly remember, Tessa. I <laughs> can't remember. Because, you know, it's, it's a, a process. I, I can't remember what that version was that yeah. was in that. But, but anyway, by the time I'd finished, I'd, I'd got a lot of other things into the book. Did then. you think that there would be a, a trilogy, a third? or, or you know, did, No, you I didn't. I mean... I was just happy to have one book. <laughs> and were they pushing you to write more? No, not really. They, I mean, my publisher, Harriet Allen, uh, who's been my publisher for all the novels, is lovely, and they've never pushed me. Um, but, of course, I started pretty late in life, so I thought I'd better get on with it before I kick the bucket. But... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so I was, you know, I've been writing fairly steadily and enjoying it hugely. And of course, it's nice when you think that they'll probably publish. You know. When you've had a book like that, does it make it a lot easier? You can basically, of course yeah, yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah. Yes. You've made a name for yourself. Yes. How yes. do you write? And look, that sounds a silly question, sorry. <laughs> I mean, but, well, but what's your process? I think of something. Mm. <laughs> um, well, once I first do, if it's going to be historical, I do the, some research first. Uh, place is very important to me. Um, I like to write about. I like to write New Zealand stories, and um, I th I like. I'm interested or drawn to places that are dramatic uh, landscapes, mm. like Deniston and the Wanganui River, and up on the volcanic plateau. But uh, once I once I'm researching and reading the real history various things pop out, like in, on Deniston, the miners strike. And so you, you, you cherry-pick the bits that, are, that you think will be, can make the story, drive mm. the story along. So the miners strike, there was a fire up there, there was um, all the deaths from... Diphtheria, diphtheria and so on. And so you think, all right, we'll have that, we'll have that, and mm. then I might... I like to choose... Uh, my main character's fictional. I know a lot of historical writers have all their characters true historical characters, but I like to have uh, to have at least the main characters fictional, so that I can choose what to do. Yeah, with you with know, them, I'm not stuck in in a situation that might not be all that dramatic and might not might be hard to drive the story. Uh, through to the end in the right way. So, although I have got no, almost no f uh, historical characters in Denston Rose and Heart of Coal, I have in the other books got quite a few yeah. real historical characters, but they are alongside my fictional characters. How hard is it to merge fiction with history? Well, I, I haven't had too much trouble. <laughs> um, it's just uh, because I choose my... Uh, it, it is... Uh, I'll tell you where it's hard, and that is if you get fascinated in the research, which I always mm. do, you want to put it all mm. in, mm. and that can be a kiss of death to... Uh, you've probably all read historical novels that have got too much stuff, you know, mm. too much detail. This is more kind of thing. Yes, it? yes. So it's a matter of finding the interesting things that are going to interest me. I think if it interests me, it'll probably interest somebody else. And away I go. And it's once a, I, it would take me about a year to do the research, and then I start writing, and then I need to go back and do a bit more research and a bit more and so on. Uh, and all that is good fun. I find it hard to leave the research because that's such interesting part of the of the whole but the not all my books are uh historical no not all no, no. and in um Denison rose and also um heart of coal you actually you hit on some pretty gritty subjects i mean you know like there's the child raping of you know of rose and then there's a suicide there's homosexuality and even heart of coal and they, they all come in and, and into mm. it is 
is that something that you feel just adds to it, or or was it because that those sorts of things were really happening? Well, of course, the, I mean, homosexuality, mm. rape of kids, that happens today, it happens, surely happened then too. Um, and those are just things that are part of our lives, and you don't want to write about things that are not. I mean, I don't want to sanitise, mm. uh, and yet you want to have... And I think, you know, so, some people have got a bit upset with what happened to Rose, don't find it easy to read. Uh, but that stuff happens. Mm. And, and if, you're, if you're a writer of historical novels, you still want it to resonate with today's readers as well as mm. Mm. yesterday's readers. Well, there aren't yesterday's readers. <laughs> <laughs> as a reader, it's hard letting go of characters that you've actually fallen in love with. Is it hard for you to say, OK, goodbye, Rose, we're now on to Con, we're going to do his story, or we're going to do Landings, or we're going to do Skylark? Well... Not really, because I'm moving on, mm. you know. I, I'm finding this quite interesting because I haven't talked about Ro about Deniston for a long time. Mm. I've talked about the other novels when they come out. Um, so I'm having to remind myself, of you know. And the, the character, an interesting thing about some of the characters in Deniston who are all fictional characters, so many people came to me afterwards when I went round talking about it, you know, and they'd say, oh, well, con the break, that's my great-grandfather. And I said, no, I made him up. No, he's my great-grandfather. <laughs> Look, here's a photograph of him and so on, you yeah. know. And people were identifying with it. I bet nobody was identifying with Jimmy Cork or Billy Grove. Yeah, no, no, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that you must have questions because um, I've, I've still got about a thousand more, but yeah. Harry... Yes. I rang up the Ferguson for manager, Bob Dixon, who was a bloody good guy. And he didn't realise I was listening and he was talking to his staff and he said, For God's sake, give him what he wants with you or he'll moan endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Harry. <laughs> I think you captured the connections in those communities. Very funny story. I turned up in Millerton, the sister city, to Geniston uh, nineteen seventy two to buy a house and this old girl looked at me and said, <laughs> oh, I wish I'd known that. I'd have put that in. <laughs> that, that in the book. <laughs> Questions? What about your latest book, Jimmy? You mean what I'm writing now? Well, or, yes. or Leap of Faith? Yes. Well, I think I'm going to be talking about Leap of Faith uh, tomorrow. tomorrow mm. aren't I? But, but we could just sort of mention yes. the fact that um, Leap of Faith brings Rose and brings yes. back... Yes, Rose, Rose is in Leap of Faith and Brennan because it, uh, Leap of Faith is set on the volcanic plateau at the time of um, when the railway was being built. And uh, I recognise that because I was a jeweller and I'm interested in how things work and how, you know, that things like building the railway, like um, how the how the river boats got up the Whanganui River 
how the incline worked. Those are sort of practical things that interest me. Anyway, when I was looking at uh, doing the building of the railway, I realised that the time frame fitted Rose and Brennan. I could bring them across, and also because the railways used coal and Rose was very involved as an adult uh, with the mining industry, she would have been interested to see the main trunk line go through, so I thought, I'll be cheeky and bring Rose back in. And so she's, she's there as an adult, not as an old lady, or she is both uh, an old lady and a, a young woman. She's not the main character, but she and Brennan are both there for a, because there was a whole army of workers recruited from all over New Zealand, 2,000 of them working on that railroad. And, and there were a number from Deniston who did actually go. Yes, yeah. there were. So it was quite likely that my Rose would have gone. And Brennan, you'd, you'd you know, made him an engineer and, and yes. out of coal. So it just, it's perfect. It so was a perfect match, yeah. yes. It's a really lovely book. And it's, it's a, again, in a very, very bleak environment and really yeah. tough, tough, tough environment. Tough, tough, yes. Yeah, Any more questions? Oh, yes, one up the back there. I'll just get you to speak up if you could a bit, Pete. Yes. I'm interested in when you do your research yes. and take all that time, how do you store your information so you can retrieve it when you, as you want it? Oh, good question. Yes, how do I retrieve my information when I'm researching? I usually have, um, I mean, I, nowadays I do a lot of the research online, but on books too, and I usually have a, um, a big hardback uh, exercise book and I put little tabs all through it, and so when uh, I don't, I don't tend to retrieve it online. Although I do write on computer, straight onto a computer, but I tend to put, keep the research in handwritten versions. Oh, wow. But uh, but i 'm beginning to change now because of course you can download chunks of information uh, and then put it into but I quite like to have the information when i 'm writing to look up now what was that date or what who was that person but i 'm wondering now how much longer i 'll do that because my handwriting is so terrible, and my hand i mean i don 't write nearly as well. Mm. Just arthritic hands, old hands, you know, and perhaps lack of lack of practice. We don't handwrite no. so much um, that I might have to do it in in a folder on the computer. Mm. When I went to, um, there was a story in Leap of Faith, and I wanted to. I I read in a book that. Somebody who was a uh, who was worked on the railroad had um, written a memoir, a handwritten memoir, and it was at the Turnbull Library. And I went to the Turnbull Library and asked, "Could I look at this?" And I, I found it, and there and it was quite. I was quite amazed that I was allowed to photograph each page with my cell phone, and then there I had it on mm. the cell phone. You know, mm. so that was a. That was an easy way of retrieving information. The cell phone nowadays, and I use that sometimes in um, 
in, in tiny museums. I will just photograph the information mm. and then you've got it. Mm. Yes. Oh. Well, the question was, um, this is the year of women's suffrage, or, you know, and what would I think of what? What would some of the characters in your book, the strong woman, like, you know, Rose and things, what do you think they would think of, um, you know, had they been here right now, how they would see the role of women in society today? They'd probably be quite amazed that women were so strong nowadays, um, I would say, except Rose... Rose herself was, she was always a strong woman and she probably never would have been too bothered, thinking about Rose, about fighting for women's rights or something. She would just know that she had them anyway, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's uh, very true. <laughs> you actually uh, think um, at the back of Leap of Faith, at the end you sort of say, all the characters are fictional, you know, but you give, the, you give the historical characters and say all these others are fictional, and you go through them, da-da-da-da. But Rose, well, she has a life of her own. Yeah. And she sort of obviously has created this, this life of her own in the reader's mind as well as in, you know, in yes. the books. Yeah. Yes, well, it was actually my publisher who wrote that in. <laughs> I hadn't thought of putting Rose in there among the... And, and she just wrote that and Harriet wrote it. And Rose, well, of course, she has a life of her own. Yeah. And I thought, that's lovely. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I can't claim it. Any other questions? Yes. When you write, do you just go on writing or do you put them into a theme, is it? I, no, I, I write um, chronologically, if, the, if that's what you're asking. I tend to... Um, it's, it's important, to me, it's important if you're writing a novel to keep the storyline moving. And I think it's hard to get a good storyline if you're writing a bit here, a bit there, a bit there, and then putting it all together. So I try to do it uh, as, as best I can. Sometimes I might in, go back and insert a bit, but um, I tend to do it, uh, and I don't, I don't write a complete plan. I'm not that organised, but I, I'll, I'll know where I'm going right at the end of the novel, mm -hmm. and then I'll usually handwrite a few notes to myself. This I want to do a chapter about this, then to this, then to this, then to this. Maybe four or five chapters ahead and write them and then another four or five because as you go, things will change and I think it's a mistake to plan, well it is for me anyway, to plan the entire novel from beginning to end. Um, Yes, mm. they do. They mm. do. They do take on their own lives, and and you can't let them be too much that, <laughs> because they could. T I mean, uh, some of those characters could turn into a dull book if you let them take on their own life too much. You know, so it's a bit. I like to drive it as well. Do you find that they take over your life, your actual personal life, when you're writing? 
Well, I certainly they're in my head yeah. all the time, and um, often at night time when I'm lying in bed, they'll you know I'll be thinking about what next. I mean, when I was a jeweller, I'd be lying in bed thinking how to make this piece of jewellery work, um, and often it's a good idea if you're just going to sleep to think about a problem you've got, and it might. It might have solved itself. Might have, the knot might be untied by, by morning. The t- by the time you wake up. <laughs> yeah. We've got time for just one more question. Oh, oh, no, behind you. Sorry. So, we'll do two. You can do the next one. I didn't hear the question. The little boy that y- inspired you to create Rose, how's he yeah. doing as an adult? He's wonderful. He's come right. <laughs> well, he was always right, but he's a, he's a lovely man now. Does he know that he was the inspiration? No. So don't you tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and just the last one, the, right behind you, Sonny. How do I know when to start writing and stop research? Well, if if the research has gone on longer than a, a year, it's time to get <laughs> cracking, Jenny. <laughs> uh, and I'll often go back to... I mean, often, once I've started writing... I mean, the, the research will suggest certain types of character. Like in Deniston, there were three groups of people there and so uh, they that will help you choose your characters after the research the the next thing for me is to choose the characters and to write their backstories so that I know the characters really well then start writing because if you start writing without really understanding the characters and what they look like and all that sort of thing you can uh, write a dull book, maybe. But uh, the old photographs are wonderful for those. You look... Old photographs and old uh, newspapers, they give you the day-to-day, the, the things that fiction readers want. You know, how, were, how did they look? How did they walk? How did they... What were their houses like? And all that kind of stuff. A lot of that's in the advertisements in old newspapers... Mm will tell you those kind of things, and the photographs. Well, I'm sorry we have to end this, but I tell you what, there are a couple of, I think there are a few tickets left to Jenny's talk tomorrow. It's out at um, Hunter's Wines, and um, it's going to focus more on A Leap of Faith and some of her other novels. But Jenny, thank you so much. This has been an amazing chat, and um, thank you for being here. Oh, I can do that. (laughs)